Welcome to episode number two of the Rattle Mind Podcast. Today's podcast is the reading of a short story written by me, W.A. McDonald. It's from a collection of short stories called Rattled Mind. I am using AI to do the reading because I read too fast. Today's story is called Preventative, which is the second story from the book. In a moment, I'll explain the inspiration behind Preventative. Thanks for spending time in my rattled mind. I was never good at predictions. Somewhere in the mid to late 90s, after discovering email, online banking, and electronic bill pay, I predicted that the post office would be gone in 10 years. Resilient damn thing, isn't it? I also predicted a few years later that eventually everyone will be on some sort of psychotropic medication. Every mood would be a clinical diagnosis, and your family physician would prescribe a fix in pill form. My imagination took this one step further and decided that waiting for a prescription was not going to be good enough. The government would force a preventative on all of I used to like it here. Long ago, when I was a child, this was where I went to escape boredom, loneliness, obscurity. Things are different now. It is a mess. When I was a child, it was here I could find solace from the world around me. When I needed to escape, I retreated into my mind and the worlds I created here. I set out on exciting journeys where anything was possible. I flew starfighters against alien invaders and saved the world. I explored the deepest oceans and discovered new life forms. Here the most beautiful girls in the world always fell in love with me. None of that is possible now. It is like a thick fog fills the place. No, denser than fog, it is more like pulled cotton balls. Thin filaments stretch throughout my mind, creating what appears to be easily broken barriers to my thoughts. However, as I push against those stretched fibers, they build up, bunching together, cutting into me, and create stronger thicker strands. Putting together coherent thoughts seems impossible. All I can manage is confusion. When a thought sparks, or an idea begins to blossom, I reach for it, but cannot grasp it. It is always just out of reach. Why am I so confused, I wonder, what is going on? I pull back and look around, turning, searching for something I can grasp. Then through the crisscross of filaments, I see something I missed. Details are hard in this scattered frame of mind, but I am sure I see a wall. If I shift my head to the left, looking through a different pattern of fibers, I see a brick wall. Then, if I turn so that I see the wall through my periphery, I see the irregular pattern of riveted boilerplate. Yet, the representation I see the most often is a stone wall. Like the internet pics I have seen of old stone fences that crisscross England. I push toward the wall, and the fibers quickly build up and hold me off. I throw a hand towards the wall, desperately wanting to touch its now stony surface. What is behind that wall? I fall into a dreamless sleep with that question bounding off the fibers of my mind. When I wake it is dark and time is lost to me. I wish days would have passed, but a part of me knows it has only been hours. I can smell myself, my sweaty sheets, cigarette smoke. I turn my head and see the flickering glow of purple neon through a tear in the blind that covers my window. Sadie's ladies is open, I whisper hoarsely into the darkness. In some recess of my mind, it registers that the scar glows purple starting around 10.30 p.m. I have not risen from my bed since before dawn, and my bladder screams for relief. I roll out of bed and with effort stand erect. Instantly my head whirls, and I feel as though the world tilts at a precarious angle. Reflexively my palm slaps the wall for stability. 
As I move, my joints protest with the pain of stiffness, forcing me to shuffle my way to the bathroom. I use every available handhold to keep me from falling off the steeply slanted floor. For a moment, I gaze down at the shadowy outline of the toilet, pondering my next move. Lacking confidence in my balance, I turn and fall to the seat. With frustration, I lift my ass and yank my briefs down. I tuck and sigh with a diminishing pressure. Then a foul smell assaults my sinuses causing me to tip my head back and to the left to escape the foul odor. God, what were they putting in me? I croak through dry lips. Shaking off what I know is not the last drop, I stand and pull up my briefs. Still unsteady, I maintain three points of contact to balance myself at the sink. My left hand gropes for and finds the light switch. Even though my eyelids squeeze shut against the flaring light, my head explodes with pain. When I open my eyes, they close involuntarily against the fluorescent affront. This cycle continues until my eyes become accustomed to the sterile white light. I think my eyes are broke, I whisper at the warped visage in the mirror. I lean in, because I do not recognize the face looking back at me. Bloodshot whites blend with the copper band of my irises. Irises stretch thin around dilated pupils. I take note of my ashen skin and gaunt features. Five days of growth color my jawline a darker brown than the greasy matte plastered to my skull. I tilt my head and the subtle movement renews the throbbing between my temples. Is it worth it? I ask the stranger looking back at me. He does not answer, just looks at me with those reddish copper eyes. My mouth feels as though the same cotton that clouds my mind coats my tongue and the membrane surrounding it. I remember a small plastic cup with hard water stains on the outside. I locate it, activate the faucet, and fill the cup. I take a deep breath, let it out, and lift the glass to my lips. It feels as though the liquid never reaches my stomach. I am so dry, the tissue between my teeth and stomach absorbs it greedily. I wait a moment for my stomach to complain. Getting none, I fill the glass again, and sip the contents slowly. Timidly, I stand erect without support. My head pounds and my joints continue to ache, but the world is closer to even. Take the preventative, echoes in my head. Is it worth it? I ask again, is all this suffering worth life without it? After a moment, my reflection shrugs. With some effort, along with ignoring the throb in my head, I can pull details out of the cotton. The government of Blue America puts the preventative in our protein sources. As best I can recall, the government subjects everyone to the preventative, at least everyone who is beyond the age of infant formula and baby food. That is because most everyone gets his or her nourishment from the public commissary. Here in Blue America anyway, I say to my reflection. I am almost certain that the preventative did not come into my life until adulthood. I search hard for a hint in my broken memories, still I cannot remember exactly when, but I do recall slices of life before it. Was it high school? No, I know it was not. The Center for Mental Health did not require it then, not yet. I focus harder grasping for when. With effort, the origins of the preventative become a little clearer. Once it was approved by the FDA, the CMH mandated that only criminals and the mentally ill were required to take it. Am I crazy? Did I commit a crime? Why am I addicted to the preventative? If not high school when? Then it dawns on me, most of the memories before joining the army are there, within easy grasp among the fibrous mess of my mind. Take the preventative, rings between my ears. Yes, take the preventative. I remember now when I started taking it, basic training. 
I joined the army to escape the wearisome mediocrity of living in a white trash lower middle class trailer park. I wanted to fly helicopters, and that was my ticket. Do my time, I thought. Get my wings, come back to free America, and live the good life as a commercial jet pilot. Maybe, if fate really smiles on me, I move up to low earth orbit transport pilot. That dream didn't pan out, my reflection says, stating the obvious. Now I want the preventative out of my life. I want a clear head. I want to be my own man. But is it worth it? I take another gulp from the cup and contemplate how I feel versus how I imagine life without the preventative. For a long time, I stare into my own bloodshot eyes as I weigh out several possible futures. I decide life without it is my future, and that standing here is not getting me any closer to relief. So far, sleep seems to offer some escape, so I shuffle uneasily back to bed. To this point, one of the symptoms of preventative withdrawal is the lack of dreams. As I lay down, my mind's eye glimpses the wall. I perceive it as rusted boilerplate steel. I notice rivets are missing, and along the top edge, large sections have rusted away into dust. I can only imagine what lies beyond, but I do recognize that its condition deteriorates with each passing day of preventative withdrawal. What nightmares do I face once the preventative releases its hold? I ask the glowing purple scar before closing my eyes. Mommy usually came and tucked me in. Where was she? I looked at the bars that were supposed to confine me, and then up at the rocket ships and planets circling lazily over my head. Judging by the ruckus and laughter coming from down the hall, I was not home alone. I discovered some time ago that I could crawl out of my crib and did so. Normally I tried to be quieter but felt confident no one would hear me over the commotion penetrating the trailer's thin walls. Tentatively I reached up, turned the knob, pulled open the door, and peeked into the narrow hallway. It was empty, but a dim hazy blue light cast an eerie glow in the hallway's entrance to my left. I crept into the narrow passage and eased along the wall towards the kitchen. The palm of my left hand slid along the smooth surface, its solid structure giving me strength. The hallway opened into the kitchen and a dining area beyond. I hung back just inside the shadow cast by the light hanging over the dining room table. A blue-gray haze floated over my cousin and others sitting around the table. Tendrils of smoke rose from cigarettes, some in ashtrays, others hanging out of the corners of mouths, while a few rested between fingers. Many of them held cards in their hands. One grabbed a can and tipped his head back draining the last remnants of golden liquid into his mouth. Another lifted an ass cheek and let go a loud fart. This triggered laughter from the group. Aside from my cousin... I did not recognize any of these people. They were strangers in my mother's home. They talked too loudly, cursed, and laughed even louder. One slammed his fist on the table, making me jump in unison with the beer cans and ashtrays scattered about the table's surface. I stared in dismay, afraid of discovery, but badly wanting to find my mommy. I creeped out a little more into the kitchen, leaving the security of the shadows. I tried to investigate the living room that lay beyond the scary people. It was hard to see anything through the smoke and the shadows cast by the hazy light. I leaned left, right, up on my tippy toes, trying to see into the dark places. Despairingly, I decided there was no one there. I retreated to the safety of the shadows, and then my room. Was my mommy in her bedroom? I doubted it, she would never allow such a commotion when I was supposed to be sleeping. 
Back in my crib, a memory offered some comfort. If I cried out for a glass of water, my mommy would come, she always came when I cried. I cried for what seemed like an eternity, when suddenly, my cousin threw open the door, a glass of water in his hand. I stared in disbelief as its contents arced through the air, bathing me in icy liquid. I gasped with a shuddering breath. Here is your goddamn water, now shut the fuck up. The door slammed, and I laid there terrified, wanting to, needing to scream out the air I still held within my lungs, but I feared it would bring my cousin back. As I stare at the pre-dawn twilight peeking around my window shade, I dwell on the long-forgotten, but painful memory for a moment. That memory obviously predates the preventative. My childhood was not terrible, but moments like that sure did not make it great. Thinking back, I hated being a child, hated childhood. Not because moments like that filled it, in fact, there was good with the bad, but overall, it was pedestrian at best. I clearly remember wanting to grow up and escape childhood. Now that I have escaped, I look back through the fibers that obscure my view of the wall and know I would not go back. Yes, I acknowledge, the wall. Is that what is behind the wall? I wonder, memories best left forgotten. Reliving the memory leaves me exhausted. I contemplate what else might be behind the wall until my mind surrenders to sleep. I stare at the ceiling of my tiny apartment looking beyond the yellow textured surface. Part of my mind registers that the source of discoloration is from decades of cigarette smoke, and the countless meals cooked on a stove not 10 feet from my head. Recognition that smoking is illegal settles into my thoughts, has been for decades. Yet, when I walk down the narrow halls of this tenement, I smell the pungent odor of homemade cigarettes. I still feel the fibers of stretched cotton. It is difficult to concentrate on anything that matters. Every coherent thought is a struggle. Only one thing sounds in my mind with any clarity, just one single persistent thought. Take your preventative dumbass. When did the preventative start? Come on, think Eric, it's not like you have lived a lifetime. Isn't every day a lifetime? How old am I? Why can't I think? Take the preventative. A wave of fatigue pushes all thoughts from my mind. Behind the wall lies the answer. Lost memories hidden behind an impenetrable barrier, sealed off from me for some unknown reason. Was I a bad man? Did I do evil things? So tired. I thrashed through the fibers of my mind, looking for something, anything, but it is all gone. Just my numbing fatigue and... Take the damn preventative. I do not have any in this little apartment. I flushed it all. If it is not available... I cannot take it, was my reasoning. To fix my head, I would have to go to the clinic. Let them shoot me in the neck. I'm strong enough, I whisper, resisting the desire to get up and make the trip. Instead, I think hard about when the preventative took hold of my life. It came shortly after joining the army, in basic training. They don't put saltpeter in the Kool-Aid, Joey said with his slow simple drawl during some rare downtime in our second week of basic. I woke up with wood this morning. Yeah Joey, who'd you slip that wood to, your hand? Max chided with a sharp Brooklyn accent, you big ape. There may not have been saltpeter, but there sure was the preventative. Joey took shit from no man. I'm six feet and if I stand tall while facing him, 
my eyes look at the place where the thick cords of his neck muscles meet his collarbone. The nylon threads of his rolled up sleeves strained to hold the seam when Joey flexed his biceps. When ordered to drop and do 20, he cranks out 50 effortless push-ups, just for show. For days, we listened to stories of his barroom brawls. How his entrance into the military was questionable because of an incident at the front porch in Troy, Alabama. As he tells it, some college jock reached over his girl's shoulder to get a drink from the bartender. The incidental contact with her shoulder caused her face to curl up into disgust as she winced away from the contact. Joey reached over her and grabbed the guy by the throat, lifting him off his feet. Three of his rugby buddies witnessed it and quickly jumped into the scrum. As Joey is telling the story, he shows us the scars that crisscross his knuckles and splay across the back of his hands. He went to jail, his hands bandaged in price-fighting boxer fashion. The other four went to the hospital, faces almost as heavily bandaged, so Joey says. The guy reaching over Joey's girlfriend, he was still in the hospital when Joey posted bail the following Monday. He was still walking with a limp when I shipped off to basic, Joey finished while absently rubbing the scars on his right hand. After Max's snide comment, we all braced for what we were sure was a beatdown. None of us looked forward to stepping between Joey and his punching bag. Yet, much to the entire squad's surprise, all Joey did was give Max an indifferent look and say, shut up Max. After day three we all just got along. There were no angry outbursts, no matter how mean-hearted or cruel a squad mate's words. We were all easygoing, non-violent tools of the Army of Free America. It was not even subtle. On day one and two, there was the dinnertime re-establishment of the alpha male, men walking around puffing out their chests and growling at each other. I watched this ritual with muddled interest. A couple of times, the rest of us needed to step in to break up a fight. Then on day three, it was all brotherly love, all the time. Nothing more than the easy ribbing men delivers to their equals. As we realized what was happening, we started to call the preventative, Mikultra, then we shortened it to Meek. My bunkmate Leonard suggested the nickname, claiming he read the name came from a CIA mind control program back in the 50s and 60s. The goal of the program, Leonard informed us, was to alter people's state of mind through drugs and other more intrusive methods. Most of us did not understand half of what Leonard said, but the name stuck. We later learned it was not in the Kool-Aid, which was obvious to me, since I hated the shit and would not drink it if I suffered the burning thirst one felt after days of crawling through the Sierra. Yet I still felt the calming effects of the meek, we all did. The army added the preventative to any protein-based foods. The military was the first widespread experiment of the preventative. Outside of military bases, people were tearing each other apart. What was left of Detroit, burned. L.A., and New York citizenry hid behind locked doors and gated communities, while every other city endured seemingly endless riots. Police shoot a young man, riot. The local team loses the championship, riot. Making absolutely no sense, but just as true, the city sports team won the championship, riot. Along with frequent mob violence, there were mass homicides. All too frequently, the media reported some type of psychosis-based violence. Reports of a father killing his children, his wife, and then himself, or a disgruntled assembly line worker walking through the production line with a handheld plasma cutter slicing up her co-workers. Recently, a regional airline pilot flew himself and 36 passengers into the grandstands of a sporting event killing and maiming hundreds of spectators. Yet, within the confines of Fort Jackson, South Carolina, it was all bro hugs and fist bumps. 
We worked together, trained together, and eventually fought together without any animosity. What was truly miraculous about military training, and the preventative, was how easily we transitioned from loving our fellow troops, to butchering our fellow human beings when the commanders of the North American coalition pointed us at an enemy and said, kill. Take the preventative, echoes relentlessly in my mind, its cadence matching the steady beat of my heart. White light burns behind my eyes. The sound of a child squealing on the street below sends a bolt through the thin pane of my window feeding the searing light and pain within my skull. A crow squawking from the rooftops, yet more fuel for the fire that burned within my skull. The steady pulsating wail of a police siren almost sends me over the edge. Me, Kultra, will, stop, the, pain. I squeeze my eyes tighter in a futile effort to block out the fierce light. My stomach flips and I do not have the strength to fight it. I turn my head towards the floor as my whole body spasms to expel the misery. Yellowish acrid smelling liquid splashes onto the floor. The smell generates another spasm, and this time I vomit up more air than bile. My head explodes with pain, as my body racks with several more dry heaves. Take the preventative. Those three words are my whole existence. If I could move, I know I would find myself at the clinic, begging the nurse to fire the mind-altering shit into my neck. Hell, at this point, I would grab the gun from her hand, pointed at my jugular, shooting myself. My resolve is crumbling. If the pain would stop, the white light faded, I could sleep. I could escape. I try to think around the thumping call of the meek. To see through the barrier of pain and light, but both consume my brain. Consume my existence. I roll onto my back, as far from the stink of stomach bile as I can get. Breathe, I think to myself. Slow steady breaths, you're stronger than this. With effort, I continue to concentrate on my breathing, fighting the fierce light that burns behind my eyelids. After what seems like an eternity, the intensity of the light dims along with the pain. A semblance of calm settles over me, and I can ignore the chant in my mind. I escape. I really need to get up. Take care of the basics. Clean up after myself. Wash my sheets. Instead, I buried my face in the pillow. Normally the cool caress of a crappy government-issued pillow provides comfort. However, it smells of dried sweat and puke-laced saliva, odors that take away my pillow's ability to comfort. Still, I keep the thin fiber-filled pillow wrapped around my head. My eyes remain closed to the small world of my apartment while my mind's eye stares at the wall that seals off somber memories. I am afraid. Afraid of what is beyond this preventative-induced barrier to my past. What crimes did I commit? What horrors did I see? Do I want to see into my past? Take the preventative. Echoes quietly in the dull throb that is my head. I wonder, no I hope, that the worst is behind me. Ignoring the preventative's pleas is almost bearable now. How many days has it been? I hear my hoarse voice ask aloud. I think hard, trying to count the cycles of light and dark. The best I can figure, it has been four days since I flushed the protein packs down the toilet. Government-issued protein packs, picked up at the municipal commissary, during my bi-monthly visit for nutritional supplementation and medical screening. Feels like an eternity, I groan at the yellowed ceiling. 
I close my eyes and turn my thoughts inward. Now that the screaming has subsided in my head, the path through the wall is clear. No more cotton, no more filaments holding me back. I know, with a gentle push, I can expose those memories. Then a terrifying thought grips me. What if, what is behind that wall shatters my resolve? What if it sends me to the municipal clinic for a quick dose of meek? I push anyway. I sat in the dummy seat of an AH-12 speeding low over the North African desert. Since I was the FNG, fucking new guy, the commander took me as his co-pilot. At least that is how Cutter, the previous FNG explained it to me. This was my first combat mission out of flight school. It was a simple strike against a suspected insurrectionist training encampment. Captain Adams sat to my right as the pilot in command. He guided the aircraft over the sand dunes with ultra-sharp precision. Even though I was just riding as ballast, the exhilaration of being in a real combat aircraft bent on its intended purpose had my nerves thrumming. I was grateful the frustration of combat flight school was behind me. That place where the exhilaration of learning a new skill quickly faded into tiresome repetition. So tiresome were the drills once I mastered a maneuver, doubts about my love for flying niggled at the edges of my thoughts. Now all those seemingly endless hours of repetition were paying off. My instructor's words echoed in my mind, your actions must become instinctive. When your brain freezes, your body better act. This was the real deal, I thought, no more rehearsals. Instinctively I scanned the data displayed inside my visor and the terrain that opened before me. Although data was coming in haste, within my mind, time slowed so I could see and hear everything, giving me time to process. I tried to stay relaxed, but my muscles twitched involuntarily in anticipation of assuming control. It took only the one incident in flight school to teach me not to let my guard down. A lesson well learned, I said without keying the mic. I marveled at the rate that our deadly attack helicopter devoured terrain. Some of the gauges tinted towards yellow as my PIC pushed the aircraft to its limits. Limits I knew from rote, and if I bounced them like my PIC was, while I was in training, the academy would have bounced me. I looked over my left shoulder and saw two more AH-12s in a trailing V formation off our weapons pod. Their wide angular fuselages permitted the pilots to sit abreast. In days of old, the pilot sat in tandem to the gunner. That design created a higher profile, while the AH-12 is much squatter. Short stubby wings with high-efficiency rotors embedded within them pivoted continually to keep the trailing aircraft in a tight formation. To my right were two more AH-12s. The belly of our flight a mere 10 meters off the desert floor. A dust-colored rooster tail rose up from the desert in our wake. I'm used as to how this display was contrary to our otherwise stealthy aircraft's profile. As the thought of our arrogance flashed through my mind, I heard and felt the helicopter shudder. Chaos erupted in my periphery. The bulkhead of the aircraft to Captain Adam's right fractured. My PIC exploded into a mist of red. His blood and tissue painted the interior. I felt the pilotless aircraft descend. Without a thought, my training takes over as I assume control. We flew on as my mind tried to grasp what happened. I tested the controls, and the AH-12 responded, but I could not see the world outside through my commander's blood and gore. I switched my attention to the information displayed on the inside of my visor. Looking under it, I traded the cyclic to my left hand and with quick icon taps, fed the outside cameras to my visor. 
Next, I attempted to clean the gore from my visor with the inside of my right sleeve. The goose streaked but my vision was acceptable, and I looked at the gunge I transferred to my sleeve. For a moment, I was dumbfounded to what to do with it. Never mind that I failed to recognize that Captain Adam's innards covered almost everything else. The radio erupted with call-outs pulling me back to the moment. I heard my commander's call sign as someone yelled, Raven is hit, I repeat, flight lead is hit. The world around me was in chaos, but my mind continued to process and prioritize. I tested the controls and scanned the trouble lights. My AH-12 was wounded, but not mortally. Raven is down, I said over the combat channel as I looked to my right, I repeat, Raven is down, I paused, drew in a deep breath, Red 1 is still operational. Drop back Red 1, came back over the radio. I thought I heard a hint of sorrow in my exo's voice, but I was not sure, Red 2 is taking lead. There was a pause, then, are you okay striker? For a moment, I did not recognize my call sign, then I double tapped the microphone trigger to signify an affirmative. Striker is now red 4. Red 5, keep an eye on him. Mission is a go. I turned my attention back to the other side of the aircraft. The hole was not much bigger than my fist and at waist level. It must have been an armor-piercing shell with a timed fuse. Tendon and muscle are all that loosely tied together the remnants of my commander, but nothing from the waist up was identifiable. My eyes settled on a helmet facing away from me on the glare shield. I traced a blood and tissue-covered spine as it snaked out of the helmet and draped over the edge of the glare shield. I wondered why I did not feel like throwing up. I sit on my bed, naked from the waist up. My face buried in my hands. Elbows propped on my knees. I poked that wall of sealed-off memories and the first one was that mission. So quickly did it fill my thoughts, I thought it was a dream. However, dreams are still impossible. I still hear the call of Meek. No, it was a memory, and in vivid detail. We completed the mission, in spite of the loss of our commander. The insurrectionists were not supposed to have such sophisticated weaponry. Isn't that the case with all military intelligence though? Always saying what should have been. Nightmares of that mission pulled me from my sleep on many occasions, often, just before missions like that one. Recalling the memory ratchets up the plea, take the preventative. From over the crumbling brick wall washed another memory. There were not a lot of beautiful days in North Africa, but this day was as close as you can get. It rained the day before, and the infamous desert dry heat became oppressive humidity for a spell. Already, the little bit of greenery that took advantage of the rare moisture shriveled under the desert sun. As I stepped out of my tent, it felt as though the air was once again dry and a little cooler than the last few days. Wish I could take the day off and go to the beach, I mumbled to myself as I walked towards the dining facility. Stepping past one of the many rows of barracks, I picked her up in my peripheral vision just a fraction of a second before the collision. If not for the circumstances, the oh she uttered just before the collision, would easily be the most pleasant oh I ever heard. The two of us plowed into the packed sand in a tangle of limbs. I could not tell if the elbow digging painfully into my ribs was hers or mine. But I was certain, the knee digging into my inner thigh was hers. We came to a rest with me on my side and her on top of me. I'm so sorry lieutenant, she cried, 
scrambling against the loose sand to regain her footing. I turned my head and looked directly into the most stunning luminous blue eyes ever to look my way. She stopped struggling to get to her feet for a moment and returned my stunned gaze. Something passed between us in that moment. Something so powerful, it numbed the aches and pains of our collision, and stole my propensity towards shyness around beautiful woman. No worries, I said, pausing because her army issue running shorts and t-shirt offered no name tag or rank. Gently I helped her up to her knees, stood in one fluid motion, and pulled her with me. What's the name? I asked, shifting my gaze from her eyes to a lock of blonde hair that escaped from her hair tie. The lock arched gently over the peak of her gullwing-shaped eyebrow, curved around her prominent cheekbone, and tickled the delicate line of her jaw. I resisted the urge to reach up and touch that lock. My name is Ivana, Lieutenant Walker, she answered with that fantastic voice, reading my name from the black rectangle velcroed to my right breast. Eric, I correct her. Well Eric, I am very sorry for taking you out like that, but you did step right in front of me, she chided coyly. Yes, yes I did. But I wouldn't take it back for anything, I replied with more bravado than was the norm. She studied me for several seconds before replying. Yes, it was a pleasure running into you. I was headed to breakfast, care to join me? Again, she studied me, looking me up and down before answering, I just started my run and would like to get it in before it gets really hot. Understood, I replied, another time then? Yes, another time, she looked at her elbows, brushed sand from them, then looked up at me. I am with Charlie Company, 2nd Battalion. Last name is Hilton. Look me up. I'll do that, I said, and then as she started to jog away, a worrisome thought occurred to me, please tell me you're an officer, I called after her, drawing looks from those in the vicinity. She stopped, turned, and laughed, well of course I am silly, then spun and ran off between two plywood barracks. Haltingly I pace within the margins of my apartment, arms wrapped around my bare chest, trying to squeeze out the pain that beats within. My bare feet shuffle across the worn linoleum floor. Nausea teases my insides, while memories of those early days after meeting Ivana dart about my mind. Take the preventative, pulses deep within my head with each beat of my heart. Part of me is tempted to give in. Stop the increasing flow of long-buried memories. I found myself standing before the window. I reach down and tug at the bottom of the old fabric blind and pull on it, guiding it up into the window casing. I look out at a drab block tenement across the narrow street from mine. Its featureless block walls and evenly distributed windows are a mirror image of the building I look out from. I shift my focus to the ghostly image reflected in the dirty glass. I studied my spectral outline as I consider that most of my African campaign memories are still contained behind the wall. Now without any effort from me, the wall crumbles, and more memories come forth with each passing day. Why would the meek block such pleasant memories? Meeting Ivana was the highlight of my time in Africa. Something foreboding tickles at the back of my mind. What other memories will I uncover? As our relationship developed, and our feelings for each other deepened, I gained a better understanding for the Army's rule against fraternization. Since we were both officers, it did not apply, but I knew deep in my soul that I could not order her into harm's way. 
When missions required that Ivana's company and mine flew at the same time, I was too busy trying to bring my co-pilot and myself home to consciously focus on her. Yet, I was aware of the distraction she created. I knew I monitored radio traffic for her call sign, but like breathing, I did it instinctively. However, when her company flew off, and mine remained behind, it was maddening. I was in the grips of one of those days. Occasions such as this were mercifully rare, and, in the past, I tried to find distractions. Only to discover such pursuits was pointless. No matter what I did, jogging, engaging in a pickup game of baseball, or attempting to lose myself in some creative pursuit, I found myself pacing the operations center while looking at my watch and listening to the sky. Every time the sound of approaching AH-12s expanded to fill the world, I ran to the flight line. First listening, and then looking for their approach, finally counting the formation as it materializes through the heat shimmers. Now, when I remained behind, I took up a station in the briefing room, feet up on the row of repurposed aircraft seats before me. A tablet propped up on my knee, with some mindless game on the screen. For obvious reasons, I avoided combat simulation games. These mindless games somewhat helped to distract me from the fact that Ivana was flying into increasingly dangerous environments. The insurrectionists are growing in number and getting better at knocking us out of the sky. Like the legend of the Hydra, it appeared every time we killed one of them, two more took their place. We are feeding the beast. I said aloud as I looked up from my tablet, frustrated with the direction my mind had taken. We were not fighting a religion, but poverty. The impoverished of many nations were the origins of the current uprising, and there seemed to be an endless stream of angry young combatants. Could you defeat a movement bred from nothing? Like every enemy in the last half a century, there was no nation, just a belief. At that moment, we fought them in Africa, but they had no country, no borders, and no capital. Based on the drivel the insurrectionists flooded the internet with, they wanted to end what they describe as rampant imperialism, while bringing about a world order that benefited all of humanity, not just the wealthy and privileged. Part of me understood their disdain for the ultra-powerful governments of the world. Having been born a common man, I understood the disconnect between government and its people. Nevertheless, this war was a meat grinder and so many had died already. Not just on the enemy's side, but ours as well. Ivana and I talked several times about not getting too close to our squad mates, knowing that the bunk next to you might be empty come Reveille. Then, within a few days, new meat took possession of the bunk and footlocker. Judging by how quickly this conflict is spreading, the grinder was just getting warmed up. I felt the hum in my bones before my ears picked up the faint drone of high-speed rotors. The sound wiped all thoughts from my mind. The pitch was wrong and there were not enough of them. I checked my watch, and my heart sank as recognition of Ivana's ETA matched up with the digital numbers on its face. I shifted back to the tablet, looking absently at the animated scene waiting for my input. Instead, my attention focused on the sound of the approaching warbirds. I decided that there could not be more than five of them, and of those, some were in bad shape. Absently I blanked the screen of the tablet, dropped my feet to the floor and stood. I looked in the direction of the approaching aircraft, then the door. With long strides I crossed the room and out into the desert heat. As the sound of stricken aircraft grew louder, my pace quickened. By the time the AH-12s were clearing the horizon, I was at a full run towards the flight line. Charlie Company left with eight AH-12s and only five approached at a couple hundred feet above the sand dunes. Much higher than our normal flight profile, 
but prudent considering the condition of two of them. Three aircraft trailed smoke, but two of them are listing so badly I was amazed they were still flying. The AH-12 was not capable of single fan flight. Knowing that, I reasoned that the slower rotor must be turning just fast enough to maintain lift. At this distance, I could not tell if any of them were Ivana's. We did not mark up our AH-12s with anything other than our call sign in small gray letters under the pilot's window. One of the listing helicopters dropped out of formation. A gasp rose from the gathering as it looked as though it was going to crash into the desert less than a mile from home. Then, much to the relief of those watching, it recovered and laboriously rose back up with the others, black puffs of smoke dotting the steady trailing stream. I was of a singular thought, was Ivana all right? I elbowed my way through a crowd gathered at the edge of the landing area, without any concern for offending those I pushed aside. I cursed the black armored glass that made it impossible to see the pilots inside. The two AH-12s that seemed unharmed, and the one trailing just a thin trail of smoke climbed as they approached the landing area, giving way to the two badly damaged aircraft. The one that seemed to have little difficulty maintaining altitude touched down with a thump. Two touchdown pads over, the struggling AH-12 bounced off the pad, careened sideways into the air, and fell back to the desert sand 50 feet beyond the landing pad. I lurched forward but felt restraining arms and hands across my chest and around my arms. I hoped to catch the almost 7,000 kilograms aircraft. Cradle it in my hands and lower it gently to the sand, preventing it from colliding with the hard-packed sand. But collide it did. The port wing collapsed under the aircraft's weight and momentum, shattered pieces of rotor flew off in all directions, propelled by violently arrested momentum. A large chunk of titanium sliced through an AH-12 parked 30 meters away. Many around me covered their heads and ducked futilely away from a blossom of shrapnel screaming through the air in an expanding arc of destruction. I watched in horror as the nose of the helicopter slammed into the ground, shattering the armored glass, exposing the pilots inside. The limbs of the PIC flailed about lifelessly as restraints held him or her firmly in place. The co-pilot tried desperately to grab any handhold available. Once again, the AH-12 leapt into the air, its tail coming around and planting itself into the sand, then collapsing under the weight of the broken aircraft. The crumpling tail absorbed any remaining momentum, allowing the fuselage to come to a shuddering rest. Within seconds, a dusty brown cloud mixed with black oily smoke obscuring the crash scene. Security and flight line personnel continued to hold us back. Our distress for those who did not return, and those still strapped in the mangled aircraft continued to push us forward. Desert camouflaged emergency vehicles converged on the settling dust cloud. While the other three aircraft came back around and offered a more controlled display of approach and landing, two bodies were unbound from the busted AH-12. The co-pilot was conscious but required assistance as he stumbled to the ambulance. Emergency workers lowered the lifeless body from the pilot's seat, placing it on a gurney. I am relieved to see it is not Ivana. However, my relief is short-lived as I realize there are still two missing aircraft. I shift my focus to the three aircraft that just landed. Fire equipment converged on the AH-12 emitting black smoke. I watched all three intently, waiting for, no hoping that a familiar figure climbed from below the armored glass gullwing doors. Both pilots scrambled quickly from the smoking aircraft and distanced themselves as fire crews sought out the source of the smoke. Neither one of them offered the familiar outline I sought. With less urgency, first the co-pilot, then the pilot climbed from the AH-12 squatting next to the broken aircraft that did not bounce. 
Once again, I did not see the truly feminine gait I learned to identify with Ivana. I sought out the two pilots from the AH-12 that listed but did not crash. In the chaos of the crash, I did not see them get out of their helicopter. It took several frantic moments for me to locate them. They stood a distance from their damaged aircraft, next to an ambulance, talking to medics. One was female in stature, and I squinted through the heat haze and smoke. The ponytail was reddish, not the blonde I so truly adored. One hope remained, and I turned to that aircraft and saw a sight that forced me to swallow a lump I was not aware of. Ivana was yanking off her flight gloves and stuffing them into her helmet as she first strode, then ran across the hard-packed sand toward me. The sounds coming from my burning throat frightened and disgusted me. God, I hate throwing up. I groan, my hoarse whisper echoing dully off the vomit-stained water and porcelain. My stomach reels once again at the smell of this morning's powdered eggs, saw milk, and stomach acid, all mixed with heavily chlorinated city water. I hit the flush button, but the toilet refused to obey as water-saving macros counted down the minutes since the last flush. My body spasmed, bending and contorting to empty the little that remained in my guts. I spit stringy phlegm and pinch my nose to clear it of the spew. God, take me now, I plead as I grope around for a towel. My stomach heaves again just as two fingers pull a towel into a white-knuckled fist. This time just a wretched sound emits from my throat, nothing more. With a trembling hand, I wipe my face. Feeling spent, I let myself roll onto the floor. The cool linoleum chills the sweat that coats my body. My eyes settle on the dust-encrusted ceiling fan as I contemplate my relationship with the me. Kultra. That deep gnawing need is still there, faint, but bearable. Yet now I feel a different part of me calling out for it. The part that was afraid of the kind of pain no doctor can fix. The memory of the tightness in my chest, the icy liquid that gripped my bowels, as I searched for her among the wreckage and remains of those aircraft that made it home is vivid. It was a memory blocked off for me before now, still, shouldn't the icy edge of fear subside a little with time? My mind conjures up a memory from eons ago, before this war and the preventative. Back to the final days of summer break, our final summer break before entering my senior year. Lisa, my high school sweetheart led me from our trailer park on the hill down to the river. Something we did often when we wanted to be alone. This time there was no intimacy. Instead, she told me she wanted to break it off. Her words hit me like a sledgehammer. I glared at her with burning eyes, my top lip clamped between my teeth. I had no words for her. The emotional trauma was something new and painful, an unexplored hurt. Lisa waited for me to say something. When no words came, she said she was sorry. With glistening eyes, she turned and left me standing on the muddy banks of the Minnesota River. The memory of the pain of that moment is still as vivid as the day I lived it. Even though the passage of time had taken the edge off, I still recall how I wanted to die that day. How I wanted to walk into the river and let it carry me away. We were just kids. I said, knowing my feelings for Lisa were just a ghost of the love I felt for Ivana. Is life without pain so unbearable? I ask aloud, wondering if I want to recall the past, knowing that the meek will stop the pain.
48 hours after Charlie Company came limping home sans two aircraft and two more badly busted up, my company, Bravo Company suffered a similar fate. The difference was we lost three AH-12s in the field along with the pilots. One of those pilots was my company commander. Now the 2nd Battalion consisted of two decimated attack helicopter companies, one lacking a commander. Battalion promoted me to the rank of captain and gave me the shorthanded Bravo Company. To fill the empty ranks in my company, they reassigned the remaining elements of Charlie Company to me. Charlie Company's commander went on temporary assignment until new meat and equipment arrived. Two things gave me nightmares about my new promotion and the realignment of the 2nd Battalion. Bravo Company COs did not have much luck. In the eight months I flew with Bravo Company, we lost two of them. Second, Ivana was now under my command. Officially, Colonel DeLong ordered my relationship with Ivana to end, and then unofficially reminded me of the consequences of letting it interfere with my duties. Our romance went underground. What kept me awake most nights, sometimes with Ivana sleeping fitfully at my side, was the dilemma of ordering her into harm's way. A few weeks after she came under my command, we lay in my narrow bed waiting for sleep to come. With the exception of this bed, she started quietly, I am one of your pawns. Her statement left me without words. I mean it Eric. If you need my bird someplace, you send it. She fell silent, waiting for me to protest. Eric? The colonel already warned me Ivana, I offered to appease her for the moment, but you are all I have in this world. Now she is silent. Just give the order, she says after a moment, or I will act on my own. I can't lose you, I finally said, then followed up with, we are going to get out of this hell and live happily ever after. Ivana rolled over, kissed me on the cheek, and said, with you in command, I have no doubt. As the months went by, I never faced that dilemma. In fact, we earned the title, The Lucky Charms Company. The newly formed Bravo Company went over a year without a casualty or a lost aircraft. Then Cutter, one of my senior pilots rotated home. That was the turning point. The charm was broken, and our luck changed. Once again, I stare at the ceiling, listening to the distant cry of the preventative. With every waking, the ache diminishes, but now lost memories fill my mind. The wall crumbles without any influence from me. I think I am starting to understand what the meek did. It sealed us off from the darkness in our lives. As if to keep them from becoming triggers for later schizophrenia, an attempt to keep us sane. For a moment, I wondered if I was losing my mind. I could not help but flash back to that morning when my commander exploded into fragments of bone and tissue. I found myself in the role Raven played when he bought it. PIC and flight lead, a fresh new pilot sitting wide-eyed in the seat to my left. The setting was different, the fighting moved from the desert to the jungles of the Congo. Instead of my AH-12 skimming desert sand drifts, our rotor wakes generated rolling green waves in the jungle canopy. The insurrectionists are much more sophisticated now than that day two years ago. We learned long ago that they were not fighting with stolen, outdated weaponry. They had the latest and greatest, and I cannot help but continually shift focus to the part of my HUD that displayed threat detection. I had seen so many die without any warning. Yet, I still believed I would see the end coming.
A notion with no basis in reality, too often oblivion comes without warning. One minute you are shitting your pants, the next minute you are just a stain in the African countryside. We were en route to Kenge to provide air cover to our ground pounders in an effort to take the city of Kenge back from the insurrectionists. Once the troops made initial contact, the fighting was fierce, and I directed my birds as calls came in to engage rooftop mortar placements and heavy machine guns. As the fighting intensified, the insurrectionists started to involve civilians. I ordered the flight to use precision-guided munitions only. Do not shoot the civilians. If they do not appear armed, don't shoot them. I commanded over the flight channel. It's not like they are wearing uniforms, blue four shot back. If you don't see weapons, don't engage. I responded, allowing emotion into my voice. Blue Ford double-clicked his mic switch in acknowledgement and swooped between low buildings to take on an old Humvee with a heavy machine gun mounted on top. Blue Flight, this is Delta 2, we have incoming bad guys on the West Highway. Can you hold them off until we can move troops? I heard from the XO on the ground. Roger, Delta 2, we will engage. I called out to Ivana, Blue 3, West Highway, I will cover. Engaging. Blue 3 responded and within moments buzzed past me. Setting up as her cover while she engaged the targets on the highway is not outside of doctrine. She was an available asset and so was I. As she engaged a convoy of armored personal carriers, I spotted a mobile anti-aircraft battery further west. Heads up Blue Flight, we have anti-aircraft in the area. I announced over the flight channel while my co-pilot targeted the placement. We whacked the first one and a second appeared around the corner. I checked our weapons stores, and set up to engage the second mobile launcher. Blue Flight, this is Delta 1, we have heavy cannon fire coming from a rooftop east of town. Requesting air cover, came over the combat channel. Quickly I performed an inventory, and realized I only have one bird available. I listened to the radio traffic, and it confirmed that Blue 3 is the only AH-12 not directly engaged with an enemy target. I knew I already waited too long to commit assets but continued to listen in hopes that I would not have to send Ivana alone to engage a heavy cannon. I heard a mic click just before I made the decision. Blue 3 is en route, Ivana called out over the flight channel. A part of me wanted to scream out, no. Yet others were counting on me, and for me to ensure we functioned as a team. My co-pilot was still busy targeting mobile anti-aircraft, anti-aircraft that is a threat to us all, so I could not protect her. Affirmative Blue 3, engage the target, I finally said. As Strato, my co-pilot confirmed another kill, I quickly flew along the road double-checking that there are no more targets. In my mind's eye, I saw Ivana flying alone over the city. Ahead of her, a large-caliber heavy machine gun was thumping rounds from a rooftop to the troops below. All it would take was an alert ammo tender to spot her aircraft and direct the gunner to turn the heavy weapon on her. With enough force to make Strato and me grunt under the strain of high G's I pulled the AH-12 around and pointed it towards the city. I pulled in power and nosed the aircraft over, willing it to accelerate faster than its limits. We cut across the jungle that separated us from the city, while I searched desperately for Blue 3. I spotted her hovering in an evasive manner as she tore into the heavy machine cannon with her own 30mm cannon. The chain gun was wreaking havoc on the placement. Sparks and pieces of concrete flew into the air as a 30mm ripped into the rooftop, the cannon placement, and the small squad of insurrectionists manning it. Finally, an explosion rocked the nose of Ivana's AH-12 backwards as the ammo store exploded. For a moment, 
I was terrified that the explosion damaged the attack helicopter, but Ivana quickly corrected the helicopter's attitude and swung around, scanning the city skyline. I began to relax when the radio erupted with three words that send ice down any pilot's spine. Rocket, rocket, rocket. Blue 3 called out, and her AH-12 lurched right as she attempted to dive below the projectile. She was not quick enough. The heat-seeking missile impacted with the fuselage just in front of the port engine intake. Much of that side of the aircraft, along with the co-pilot, port engine, and the rotor system disappeared in an expanding ball of fire and shredded armor. The preventative no longer called to me, but I am terrified of my memories. I grew up afraid of nothing. That is until I fell in love. Now, I sit at a shitty little plastic table, my face buried in my hands. I am willing myself not to look at the door that leads to the hallway. That hallway leads to the stairway, and that stairway to the street. Just a few short blocks away was a clinic, and the end to all these painful memories. From there, the commissary to collect my protein packs, and forever forget the horrors of a distant continent I will never see again. The crippled aircraft spun helplessly into a collection of low residential buildings. I watched in dismay as it crashed through a low roof and exploded on impact. Ivana, I whispered as I watched a rolling ball of fire belch from the hole left behind. Recklessly, I banked my aircraft into a low orbit around the crash site. Oblivious to everything around me, I focused on the flaming hole that consumed my sanity in all this chaos. For nearly two years, we shared happiness in the midst of hell. She was my single source of peace in all this destruction. At least she knew it was coming, I think absently. Rage boiled away the constant fog of the meek, clearing the way for unfamiliar thoughts. I saw insurrectionists running through the narrow streets towards the crash site. Without thinking, I tapped out commands that told the computer to target them. Within seconds, a 30mm chain gun mowed down humans like so many blades of grass. Weapons free blue flight. I shouted into the comm, engage all targets. The odor of chlorine, rust, and something else emanated from the city water that streamed lukewarm from the calcium-encrusted showerhead. I feel it getting colder with each passing second but cannot bring myself to care. I hate cold showers, but not nearly as much as the waves of emotion that wash over me. My forehead rests on my forearm, which I brace against the tile wall just below the showerhead. Moments ago, I was finishing my first shower in days. Then, as I turned to rinse the thin layer of lather from my body, the memory of Ivana's final moments came rushing over me with painful clarity. I thought I was in control of my memories. When my squad returned from that mission, I made a beeline for the shower. I felt vile and needed some sort of cleansing, hoping soap and water would wash away the filth. As the lukewarm water ran down my chest, rage and grief overwhelmed me. I sobbed alone in the officer's shower long after the stream turned icy. After the tears diminished, I wondered at how ineffective the preventative was at controlling powerful emotional outbursts. When ordered to engage the enemy it was just a matter of training, each of us a tool in the military arsenal. The preventative kept us unattached, cold emotionless killers. 
The preventative cannot deal with love, or the grief that can come from it. The next morning, I was standing before the battalion commander, answering for my actions. I did not walk out of his office unescorted. MPs, like bookends, escorted me to the brig. My court-martial was swift. They convicted me for giving the order that led to the death of dozens of non-combatants. The African Federation wanted me tried for war crimes, and the North American Coalition wanted to go along with the AF, but Free America told them all to pound sand. I was an American troop, America will take care of the trial and punishment of its own. As the foul city water became icy, I pulled myself from my reverie. Shivering, I turned the water off and reached for a towel. I looked around the tiny bathroom and reflected on my life since my court-martial. I wondered if this is any better than an AF prison. My court-martial killed my chances at free America citizenship. So now, I floundered in this tenement, a drain on the system. Once again, I am a citizen of blue America, with no real prospect of making something of myself. At least that seemed like the future before kicking the preventative habit. I say to my distorted reflection in the scratched stainless steel mirror. I bathe in the heat of the midday sun, enjoying a near cloudless sky. It has been days, no over a week, I correct myself, since I stepped out of the confines of my apartment. I wonder if it is my long isolation in that cramped place that made the sky seem so blue. Immediately I dismiss the thought knowing it was something else taking joy out of life. Definitely the meek, I remark aloud drawing looks from those who tramp aimlessly past me. I look in the eyes of those who trudged along the sidewalk. Dull and lifeless eyes, faces slack, presenting little emotion, faces of the preventative. I do see something in the faces that glance my way. I see the look of disdain for my relaxed posture and beaming smile. My ass rests at the very edge of a park bench, legs stretched out fully in front of me. Shoulder blades supported by the bench's back. My hands folded easily at my waist, clear eyes scanning the green space wedged between tenements. It is a postage stamp of a park, but at least it is something other than concrete and asphalt. Life offers me nothing more today than it did before kicking the preventative habit. I am still stuck in blue America, still a drain on a broken system. I probably could not find a job even if I looked. At least I am my own person again, I think with satisfaction. My heart aches for the loss of Ivana, an ache that intensifies when I recall the happy times. I sniff deeply as I recall her fragrance, my hand twitches at the memory of her silken hair sliding through my fingers, my whole body quivers as I recall the touch of her skin. The difference is, I can recall those memories. Memories lost to me before kicking the habit. I would trade anything to have Ivana back, to have my military career back, and the prospect of free American citizenship ahead of me. However, I will never again trade the absence of pain for the memories of the very brief time I shared with Ivana. That concludes the preventative. Originally, the ending offered a more political and social justice-type message. However, my beta readers-slash-editor thought it was out of place. To this day, I'm in, I am tempted to put it back, but for now, we'll keep it as published in the book. Thanks for listening. That concludes this episode of Rattled Mind. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my story. Hopefully you enjoyed this little peek into the workings of my rattled mind. If you'd like to sample some of my other stories, please visit my website at wamcdonald.com. 
There you'll find short stories, a link to my book, Rattled Mine, and nonfiction blog posts that offer insights into my youth, growing up, and my worldview. Once again, thank you for tuning in.